Rescue the Fosters is about changing the foster system. We want to ensure every child has a safe environment to grow and become healthy, successful adults. Additionally, when I was in the foster care system, I had to defend for myself. Rescue the Foster is here to empower the youth aging out of the system and offer resources to ensure they are not dependent on the government. What we observed was that children become institutionalized and end up in prison and providing the government with more funds. Rescue the Foster will provide coaching, resume writing, interview skills, professional attire for interviews, budgeting, applying for college, and obtaining housing. We want these youth to live the most free, successful life possible. It is their right and our responsibility to ensure that our future kids and grandchildren can live happy lives. Jeremiah 29:11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans that prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Good evening and welcome to Rescue the Fosters. I am Gino, your host, and as always, next to me and below, the co-founders of Rescue the Fosters and co-hosts of Rescue the Fosters, Miss Sylvia Beachy and Miss Danielle Holm. Ladies, how are you this evening? Good. How are you? Good. Doing great. Thanks. It's a, a balmy 72 here in Michigan today, which is unheard of in February. So enjoying the sun and great weather. It's been amazing. Um Another great guest tonight, ladies. Enough about the weather. Uh, another great guest tonight. We're going to discuss our favorite topic. It just seems like CPS pops up all the time with this show. I don't I don't understand it. Facetiously, I say that. Um, we're, we're actually sick of the system, and we're trying to expose the system. And we have another guest that uh, had an experience not so good with CPS and is here to explain his situation and his wife's situation. Sylvia, can you please introduce our guest tonight? Yes, of course. So Michael and his wife, Emily, this is another hospital story, and I, I don't remember the name of the hospital, so I'll have you tell us, Michael, but Michael was actually referred to me uh, from Gabe Woolley, so uh, this is another family that has been in touch with Gabe, and uh, Michael's wife, Emily, has been on a few uh, podcasts herself, and she's on Instagram, I saw her uh, podcast, um, so yeah, take it away, Michael, and, and uh, just say the name of the hospital so everyone can be um, sure which one it is because this is a theme that we're finding uh, with the CPS is that um, they have people in hospitals. Yeah, uh, thanks for the intro. <laughs> um, the hospital was Broadlawns Medical Center uh, in Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, um, so to start with the story, we, we my wife and I have, seen uh, and observed HHS, DHS, CPS, uh, whatever they're going to call themselves today, um, from the opposite side, where we have friends and family that are uh, foster parents. And so we, we got to see it on that side. And then <laughs> about a year ago, almost a year ago, um, we got a knock on our door from HHS uh, claiming to, that we were child abusers. So now we're introduced in the, into the other world of HHS, CPS, uh, which is a totally different world than this kind of idealistic, I want to be a foster parent and help these kids out um, and be, uh, you know, finding a way to protect these kids from harmful situations. Radically different situation that we were, we were kind of blasted into. And to back up before we got that knock on the door, 
my wife with our second child, um, we did our home birth. Well, we attempted to do a home birth on our first child. On our second child, we decided to go in back to Broadlands, which is where we delivered our first child. We had a good experience and they respected most of our decisions. We, I would call ourselves kind of on the hippie scale. <laughs> um, we like holistic things, natural things. Um, and so we wanted a hospital that would respect some of our decisions that were, I guess, unconventional in the traditional medical space. We had a good experience. And so we went back to the hospital. Uh, this time around, my wife did the pre her prenatals at Broadlands. Um, no red flags, everything was going smoothly. Uh, we go to deliver. Well, <laughs> my wife and I, or my wife specifically, did not want to go to the hospital early because uh, she didn't want the risk of Pitocin and epidurals and all the other things that can, can cascade into C-sections and things. So she waits and eventually she wakes me up in the middle of the night uh, or about 6 a.m., I guess I should say, and says, hey, we got to go. And I'm thinking her labor is going to be another five or six hours because her, her first labor was very long. So I'm pretty casually like I jump in the shower. I uh, am going to wake her kids up and she goes, we got to go now and is yelling at me. And so then I grab the bags. I'm taking our two year old in my hands down the stairs. At the time we lived uh, on a second story kind of a apartment uh, deal. And so I'm running down the stairs and I hear this like cry for help. And uh, she's on the back porch. I'm like running to the car, slamming the kid in the car, buckling him up. I turn the car around and then she's, she's gone. Like I, I'm like, where, where, where is she? I go back up the stairs. So it turns out she had, she had the head was breached um, on the back porch. And so she thought, I'm not going to make it to the hospital. So she waddles up the stairs to back into, the, in, into our house. We end up, I end up delivering our second son on the back porch of our house. Crazy experience, amazing experience if you've ever delivered your kid. Um, and so, oh, Gino, are you muted? Yeah, I wasn't talking. I was just like, you're kind of blowing my mind, to be honest, yeah. Michael. Like, I've had four kids. I can't even imagine. Look. I build things. I don't like deliver babies. So I'm just <laughs> in awe of what you did. Oh, it, it was amazing. I mean, like I walk up the stairs, she's like ready to go on all fours. And she's, she says, uh, she says, you're going to deliver this kid now. And I go, <laughs> I go, are you sure? And uh, she then says, yes, <laughs> you're delivering this kid. And I mean, within like five minutes, the kid was delivered. I'm handing the kid uh, to her. Uh, Paul is his name and a uh, beautiful experience. And then we transferred into the hospital. Um, they treated as this crazy emergency. They're like distracting me, like almost trying to pull me away from my wife. Um, I, had the, I had the most awkward ride up with the, one of the nurses because they were trying to get me to like fill out paperwork while my wife's being hauled up into the like, oh, like not emergency room, but up into the room to like check her out and to make sure Paul's okay. So anyways, we got to the, the room. We had some additional like things that, occurred at the hospital with um, a retained placenta. And so we had, my wife had to get blood transfusions and she had to like, they had to go back up inside her and, and, and like scrape the uterine wall or the cervix walls to get this little tiny piece of placenta out. And so pretty crazy experience. Um, we, Paul's perfectly healthy, like, you know, a little bit cold when he came in, but was perfectly healthy. Um, we left, I think two days after we got there, which is, I think fairly normal today. And then um, 
two weeks later, we get this random knock on our door from HHS. And this lady knocks on our door and says, hi, I'm Tina. I'm with HHS. Um, is Emily here? And I'm thinking to myself, you know, why is this lady here asking about my wife? Um, so my, so Emily comes to the door and she, and then she goes to tell us that my wife tested positive for cocaine at the birth um, of Paul and that Paul was, you know, a, a, a victim of cocaine. And both of us are just flabbergasted that, I mean, my wife's never taken cocaine in her life. Um, how could this happen? What, what test did they do? I mean, again, we're not used, we have no, we've never had any involvement with HHS in our life. And so this is just an amazing, you know, what the heck's going on here? So we ask her questions like, how did they get the test results? Uh, we didn't ever do a test, a drug test. How, how did this happen? And um, she's kind of clueless as to, you know, what's going on other than the fact that she's got to do a 20 day investigation and she's going to call the hospital and she's going to check to see, you know, what happened at the hospital. And um, uh, later we found out that they're doing these unconsenting drug tests um, in the state of Iowa. And I, I, it sounds like all, all of the states um, with what they call indicators. And I think what's fascinating is the indicators really don't have to do with causation. Um, they're all like these, these, oh, corollary, you know, nothing to do with the child's health, nothing to do with symptoms of the kid. Um, so it has to do with like, were you a prior uh, drug addict or um, uh, did you have, uh, did you not do, um, oh, what is it, um, uh, prenatal care? I mean, all of these indicators that have nothing to do with, is the baby having withdrawal symptoms? Is, you know, is there um, uh, brain defects? Like not, nothing to do with the actual medical piece everything to do with other like factors. And so this cascaded into this whole fiasco where essentially there was no way for us to prove my wife's innocence. She did three different drug tests with DHS, all were negative, all were hair tests. Uh, we did our own 12 month hair test. We did four P tests, negative, 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 all negative. And they then found my wife of child abuse. Uh, they put her on the child abuse registry and uh, it, I'll skip some of the details, but essentially it went into a China case. And then after the seventh negative drug test, they then recommend taking our kids from us. This is eight, eight months after the start of this. We've got seven drug tests that are all negative. The seventh one comes back negative. And then they say, oh, we'd like to put the kids in a foster care, into the foster care system. Luckily, the judge dismissed the case uh, literally three days after they recommended this. Uh, so the exact opposite of what HHS was recommending, um, but it was really scary. I mean, we were ready to like skip town and like leave the country or leave the state um, because, you know, after seven negative drug tests, how do you prove yourself innocent, uh, innocent in a case like this, right? So that's that's a bit of our story. <laughs> uh, can you explain real quick what the China, uh, China case is? Yeah, sorry. So China is child in need of assistance. So it's actually spelled C-I-N-A. I don't know why they call it China. It's so weird. I think it's because it's children in need of assistance. That's why they call it China, I think. Um, but that that's, at least in the state of Iowa, that's the next step to escalate um, to basically remove the kids. So essentially the DHS allows, takes it to the court system and then allows the judge to make the decision on whether or not the child is, is in actual need of assistance. 
So you had negative test results and they were still pursuing your child. Yeah. So yeah, it's crazy. So, um, after this, or yeah, we had all, all negative drug tests and they, I think the big thing that they were looking at it is that the first drug test is, is a tissue test, a DNA or a, a, a placenta tissue test. And that that test is more accurate and can perform more acute use. So you could use cocaine once and it would flag. Whereas a hair test, you'd have to have constant use and, you know, all of the other factors. And the, the, the thing that the social worker or caseworker said to us is, well, we did a three month hair test. And so you have a nine month pregnancy. And so there's six months where she could have used and we can't test for that. So because there's, because it's guilty till proven innocent, then they're just going to go with guilty instead of innocent. Right. Did you have access to every test? Uh, You mean like the results or what do you mean? Yeah, The results. Yeah. Sorry. Um, Did we get the, did we get the results? I don't know if we got the actual like results sheet, but we did get confirmation from HHS. I don't know if we actually received like the printout of the negative tests on all mm-hmm. of those. Interesting. Yeah. I, I want to know how they got the first positive. Mm-hmm. So did they okay. ever explain how they got the first positive? Yeah. So, so this, and the story continues. Uh, it's, it's still, it's, you know, we're still kind of moving through this process, but um, so I believe what they, the way that they, um, the factors that they used in their report was that my wife got inadequate or delayed, or I think it was inadequate prenatal care. So we did things like declining ultrasounds. Um, uh, we went in a little bit later, uh, didn't have quite as probably as quite as many appointments. Um, you know, we're used to a home birth midwife where it's, it's you spend a couple of hours with the midwife, but you do less appointments and you talk about a lot of other things outside of the traditional medical space. And so they flagged it as that. Um, I think the, they also flagged it as precipitous labor to our understanding. Um, and technically the, like the medical definition of precipitous labor would be two to three hours worth of labor. So very, very quick labor essentially is what it means. And we repeatedly told them, hey, my wife went into labor at least 12 hours prior to coming in, into the hospital or before delivering Paul. Um, they, they then you know, basically say there's no box for us to check other than precipitous. So we're going to check precipitous. And so I think because of those things, us transferring over, um, they just said, you know what, we're going to check some boxes. So, it's, it, and then, was, so it was never a positive. They made it up basically because you can't have a positive based on that. Like a positive is says she did cocaine. Uh, but well, so, so they, so they, so, so they did get a positive somehow. And so the sample was sent in immediately after the birth. So the birth was at, at our home at 7am and they sent the sample in at 9am from the hospital. So immediately when she came in there, they sliced the, the cord up and then send it off because they thought it was that urgent for them to do this test. The test then came back 14 to 15 days later, or actually I think seven days later, they then called it in and the DHS got involved, I think three weeks, two to three weeks later. Um, so here's what's fascinating. So after all of this happened, you know, we're of course, my wife's feeling like she's guilty, even though she's not because of the whole like mental gymnastics that they put you through, the manipulation, uh, all of that. 
we eventually said, you know what? It's kind of embarrassing to, to say that you're on the child abuse list, right? Especially as a mother. So eventually my wife started putting this out online. Um, we got connected with an old friend of mine uh, or still a friend of mine from high school or from college. His wife's a state rep at the Iowa State Legislator. She got involved. She's an amazing lady. Um, uh, Annette Sweeney's her name. Uh, she got involved and she basically shook some trees or she shook the roots, right? Or whatever, whatever the saying is. So she, she's helping to get the AG's, the uh, attorney general's office uh, involved with the state of Iowa and some other legislators and the director of HHS. Uh, I think her the director Garcia is her name. And so she's making all these calls, which we feel super grateful for because most people don't have a contact that's going to call the director of HHS and actually they're going to answer, right? So she starts shaking, shaking these branches. The deputy uh, AG's office, uh, Ed Bulls, his name, amazing, amazing guy, um, is helping us through this process. He's paying, or the state is now paying for tests to, to confirm or you know, prove innocence for my wife. So, um, so they are doing a DNA. They, they, they. So. To add to the story, my wife and I kept our placenta, which most people don't do, but a lot of hippies do it. Uh, we, I made, I made placenta smoothies from for my wife on her first kid, uh, berries and placenta. Uh, uh, but weirdly enough, she decided that she didn't want to have placenta smoothies this time around, and so we kept the placenta in our freezer, and we were going to plant a tree or do something, right? I, we don't know what we we're going to do with it, and so it's been sitting in our freezer. And since the DA, the HHS officer came, we kept telling her like, hey lady, test the, test the placenta in our freezer, right? And she's like, I have no idea what to do with this. Like there's no policy in their system to like test a freezer placenta that was gonna be eaten for placenta smoothies, right? Um, and so, so Ed Bull is actually going to, they tested the original placenta that was in our freezer that the hospital gave us. And that has since came back negative. So now, the, now there's two, two kind of, contradictory tests saying that did the lab mess up was it actual positive did we buy a placenta off the black market i mean th those are the kind of things that the ag's office is looking at right um and it was really funny <laughs> so we're walking up with this bat this plus this bucket of placenta and it's got the hospital's bio biohazard bag like uh, around it and so it's like this bright red bag that says biohazard on it with these x's right and so we're, we're handing like outside of this criminal lab in, in um, Ankeny, Iowa, we're handing it to Ed Bull, the AG and the doctor, and they're going into their criminal lab and then doing, pulling this sample off, coming back. I mean, it literally, it felt like a weird drug deal. And I tell, I told Ed this and he just laughed at me because this is why we're, why we're here. Right. Um, and so anyways, they tested the original sample or the original placenta. Now they subpoenaed the, the sample from the lab that then got sent over to Texas, where they're going to do a DNA test to see if it's my wife's actual placenta. And then after they do the DNA test, then they're going to send that sample to, to get another drug test to see if the lab actually messed up. And if they did, then, you know, of course that, that opens up the lab to liability and, and it helps the state understand that these tests do get flawed sometimes. How do you know they're actually testing the placenta you brought? We, the, I mean, we've oh, seen, so the, an, we've had lots of people on Michael and I got to tell you, I trust no one at this point. Yeah. Uh, so like, and I'm, I'm not even exaggerating, like literally nobody. Um, I, I can, 
I can just imagine if I was in that position, I want to be in that room with them, watching them do that lab test. I mean, and obviously you weren't afforded that, I'm guessing, right? No. So, yeah, yeah I mean, I'm, I'm giving some faith here. And I think I agree with you. Like, it's hard for me to trust some people. Uh, I feel somewhat trustworthy of him um, just simply because he's over communicating. You can tell that he is he understands both sides of the system and where both sides, like, it's kind of like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, you know, like if you get rid of the system, then you have people that are abusing kids. And if you keep the system, then you have all of these other issues. Um, uh, he's the only person that we can get to do these tests right now. Um, we've tried lawyers, we've tried uh, physicians. Um, I mean, I called up my sister and she's an OBGYN doctor, right? So she does these tests too, like she delivers babies. And she, she's like, I don't know what to do. Like, I, I can't help you. And I'm thinking to myself, this is like someone that is in the system, you would think would be able to make some of these calls. And yet, even, you know, you're, you're a family member that's an OBGYN can't even figure out how to, how to get these tests done. And so for us, it's kind of like, well, we either don't do the tests and, and we are kind of shit out of luck, or we trust him a little bit and, and make sure that we just hold some accountability. So we'll see. I mean, at least with, I will say with the original sample that went directly from USDTL, which is the lab out of Illinois. And it went, got sent directly to a Dallas lab um, in Texas directly without any intervention with the state of Iowa. And so I at least can feel good about having somewhat of a direct train, chain of custody to where they can't intercept anything or do anything weird. So um, one thing, the first time we talked, I think you had said something about, you might have to refresh my memory, but something about how the lab wouldn't actually communicate with you personally because they were saying that she isn't, you said something like they said that she isn't the client, that yeah. the hospital is the client. And I thought that was interesting because when you sign hospital paperwork, you're signing over the hospital as the power of attorney. And a lot of people don't realize that. And then they can speak on your behalf. And then you can't even get your own results from the lab because you're not their client. Yeah. And I think, I think this is where, if we want to talk about policymakers and, and how they don't understand how some of these laws get enacted and held accountable with these different administrative bodies, like an HHS, DHS, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways in which it's it's really rigged against the parent or against the person that they're trying to prosecute um, in a lot of ways. So I'll, I'll give try to give some examples, but um, one of them is the hospital. So the hospital will do these tests um, and then they'll send them off to typically, to my understanding, if they're doing a urine test, it's my understanding that they'll do the urine test. If there's like probable cause, like somebody comes in high, if they want immediate results, they would do a urine test, which is less accurate and that I think typically happens at the hospital in which the kids delivered. But when they're sending off these tissue samples with placentas and umbilical cords, those usually get sent off to a third party lab unless there's a really massive hospital that has this testing in house. So that then gets shipped to another lab, a third party lab. Um, and yes, so once the results come back and if they come back, you know, obviously not in your favor and you try to call the lab, the lab will say, you're not our client. We can't talk to you. You must talk to the hospital because they're our client 
And so you're the hospital's client, the, hospital, the lab's client is the hospital. So now you've got this kind of game of telephone that you're playing. And if the hospital doesn't want to play a game, which they didn't in our case, and I would imagine that they don't want to open themselves up to liability, they want to close those doors as tight as possible. Um, they, the hospital will, the, the hospital, we have emails back and forth where the hospital says, you can't talk to us. We can't do it. You have to talk to the lab. Then the lab says, we won't talk to you. You got to talk to the hospital. And so we have back and forth and back and forth. And eventually we had to uh, go the subpoena route in which we would, we, we had to subpoena the lab. Well, actually what was kind of cool is the, our attorney in the China case. So the child need of assistance case um, actually was willing to subpoena the hospital to force the hospital to come to the China case and explain why they're not doing the retest. So one thing I left out is during the China case, we we were able to get the the judge to allow us or to, to give us a court order to demand that the sample um, were, were to get retested. Now, everybody ignored that. <laughs> so we talked to the hospital, they ignored it, they, they went to the lab back and forth, back and forth, right? Um, and so I said, I said, can we subpoena the hospital to get them to come to force them to come to the China case to explain to the judge why they're not doing this court order, which says in 30 within 30 days, this, this sample needs to be retested. Um, because at this point, we're still in the, we're still at risk of our kids getting taken from us. And um, luckily, during that, luckily, during that time that we had the, the staff member from the hospital in the, in the courtroom or in the virtual courtroom, um, the case got dismissed and then we, nothing ever came of it, but when it got dismissed, now the court order was null and void. And so now we had to start over. And so I think a lot of these hospitals and labs played this game of, you know, we know that we know how to play the game. We know how to pay to, you know, keep things quiet. And so they essentially just drag these things out and they know that ju judicial or uh, sorry, um, juvenile courts have limited scope and jurisdiction. So there's only a certain amount of things that they can do. And so they make all these hurdles to where you're never going to get anything accomplished during the juvenile court. You, you can only get it accomplished if you pay a hotshot attorney to go off to the lab in some civil, civil court. So that's just, that's just one systemic thing. But I can go off on all of the other things that you know, are just rigged against the parent and make it impossible for them to get really a, a fair trial or a due process or anything of that nature. So, oh, Yeah, please go on with that in a, in a second here. I got a real quick comment. So it does seem, and it, it appears to me anyway, that this is because you're living this, you know, quote, hippie lifestyle, your natural past, you want to do it the old fashioned way. I mean, call me crazy, but it seemed to work for, you know, millennia. <laughs> Why all of a sudden do we have to go to big pharma and be in their systems, you know, to have a child? I don't understand that. Well, I do understand it, but, um, so, I mean, is that really why they targeted you? I mean, is that what your, your feeling is at this point? I think so. Uh, you know, if you look, so I, you know, as, as I'm trying to figure out, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to play their game. And so I'm looking at different, I'm talking to some other midwives that were really helpful, trying to understand the code and the appendixes and the supporting documents and the kind of policies that have been enacted. And so one of the things that you'll find, um, uh, you've got the code that's in the Iowa code, and then you have these appendixes that they that they were referenced to that are, oh, they're, they're, they're these recommendations made by different institutions and, and nonprofits and boards. So like, for example, it would be like, maybe like the, co I'm making these names up because I can't remember, but it's like the coalition of uh, obstetrics or the coalition of uh, pediatrics or something, right? And so 
a, a University of Iowa study essentially said that in their study, they said that there's seven factors uh, that, that basically contribute to 96% of the positive drug abuse cases. Um, but they're, they're factors, not causation. So think of like, I, the way I like to describe it is a cop has to pull you over and, you know, they're supposed to have probable cause, right? They're not supposed to just search your car and do whatever they want and violate your search and seizure, right? Uh, um, these factors that the hospital requires have, do not follow any of these, kind of, what is it, 14th Amendment or for, it's either 4th or 14th Amendment rights. They don't follow any of these. They're just guidelines and factors uh, or indicators. So the indicators could have nothing to do with probable cause. They could just be corollary. And most of them, if not all of them are corollary. So like uh, if, if you're a cocaine uh, or, or a methamphetamine or you have some addiction, um, uh, which is super unfortunate, but if you have an addiction, typically you're gonna increase your risks of uh, you know, birth defects, uh, brain, um, uh, premature labor, uh, underweight children, um, a ruptured uh, um, uh, a ruptured placenta, right? Um, and there's other other risk factors too. Instead of this this study going to these factors that that have like correlation, meaning that if you were born at 36 weeks and you were born really low weight, that would be maybe probable cause, or it would increase your risks of being associated with being a a, a drug baby. Well, instead of going that direction, which I would consider to be very more medical, they go the direction of, do you have a prior drug use um, in, in, in criminal, criminal instances or some other test that the hospital is able to get you to do or non-consenting drug test or whatever. Um, it has to do with uh, delayed uh, prenatal care. So that's just, to me, that's personal preference, right? Like you get to decide when you want to get care. Uh, that to me isn't really like a causational like piece, right? And there's all these other factors too. Um, in these seven factors, which if you, if we, if I dissect our case, we really didn't meet any of these factors. So the, there's not a factor for precipitous labor. Um, there is a factor for the delayed prenatal, but you know, my wife shared our prenatal visits with our home birth midwife before she transferred over to the hospital. Um, we had all of the, she showed up to all the visits that they asked her to show up to. Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, to, long story to your or long answer, but uh, I think that they simply didn't like the fact that we transferred from a kind of home birth setting um, and that we were denying all of these different procedures, vitamin K, all these other things. And so I think that's why they they said, you know what, we're, we're going to check the box and send it off immediately um, for, for those risk, fa those factors. So Michael, this is very interesting. And I, I have to say this because this, to back help his story, it sounds exactly like the beginning of mine <laughs> because it was, I was in labor for several hours before the hospital. They didn't like that. Um, I was uh, all around the country having prenatal care when I could and refusing certain things like ultrasounds. I did have ultrasounds and I have proof of it, but I didn't have it every month. So it was just kind of like as needed. And I was very crunchy. I actually asked the hospital for my placenta. They refused, didn't give it to me. <laughs> um, they thought that was weird that I asked them for it, but I did. Um, and then just like you're saying, like all of these factors, they checked the boxes off and they didn't like the transfer from nat natural to hospital. They didn't like that. 
So then they did a drug test without my knowledge. And thank God they didn't come back with anything positive because that would have just catapulted even more stuff. But they did in the medical records say that we had passed drug use, which we didn't. And then they even said that we could potentially be in a drug cartel. So that's what catapulted the kidnapping of my son. But you're absolutely correct. They have boxes that they check off and it has to do with the natural versus the system. If you go from the natural way to the system, they target you automatically. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they you know, I, I want to give them some sympathy in the sense that like they have a process, they're trying to follow a process and if, and they believe if you don't follow their process, you increase risk or you increase um, you know, uh, bad outcomes. So I understand their perspective. I think where, I mean, if you look at our society across all different categories, we're in a society where people are afraid to take any risk. Uh, they don't want to make their own decisions because it takes courage uh, to make your own decisions. And so when you have these huge institutions that are massive and they're, they're, they're compartmentalized in so many ways, right? It's not like you you have the same physician throughout your entire care. You, you skip to different physicians. Um, and, you know, obviously in your situation, you're skipping because you're, you're traveling to different spots. But even if you were, a, if you lived in the same town your entire life and you, your grandparents and your great grandparents all lived in the same town, you would all have different physicians and you'd have different boxes and administrative checkpoints and all kinds of different things. And so when you have these huge institutions that no one really thinks critically, they just, they're there to follow rules you get this, you, you, you just don't get any problem solving and discernment for anybody because if they don't follow the rules, there's consequences. And so they, all they do is just check the box. And, you know, if there's any chance of something going wrong from liabilities perspective, they're going to check the box because, you know, what if, what, what if, and then they don't, the hospitals don't understand. They have no understanding of when they start this cascading effect that kids can get taken with insanely low cause or low, you know, reasons to take kids, 51% preponderance in the state of Iowa, that that's not innocent until proven guilty. And so they have no understanding of where this goes. And so they just check the box again, because there are these big institutions that they don't actually have any discernment and they don't track it from start to finish. They just hand it off and never think about it and sleep, sleep every night and have, have no problems with sending these things off to these big institutions. So I, I don't know how to fix it, but you know, big government just doesn't work very well. Mm -mm. Yep. And um, I, I just wanted to, to make a statement that I had a, a co-worker when I was a caseworker that all of her births were at home with a midwife because she said that all of her friends, she had too many friends that went to the hospital and had their kids taken and she was a caseworker. So she never went to the hospital and her Jeez. kids were never vaccinated or anything like that. Um, and they didn't eat meat. So like, and she made it a point not to go to the hospital. Well, your, your, both of your stories is saying, don't go to the hospital, just stay away from the hospital. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know well, if this is a nonprofit? Um, so they're ran, I don't know all the structures, um, but they're ran, they, they have funding from the county. So they're a county hospital. Mm -hmm. um, so they're a really interesting hospital actually. So they're in a really rough area. Um, they have a lot of issues with, you know, mental health problems and abuse and all kinds of things. Um, but they have, interestingly, they have a, 
they're like a case study for midwifery in which they brought in a bunch of home birth midwives. So all of the, all of the midwives there came from the home birth setting. And so they've been able to get some really interesting results in a very low income area. And that's one of the reasons we went there. And one of the reasons, generally speaking, they say they're okay with these kind of crunchy granola kind of habits. I mean, I have a friend, uh, well, I have an, I have a guy that I know he's an acquaintance, uh, hotshot attorney in Des Moines, um, makes a lot of money and him and his wife are going to Broadlands because they want this kind of granola home birth type setting. They don't want to go to the suburbs where they have to get this like sterilized kind of, kind of, uh, approach. Um, so it's interesting um, that they're that they have this, but then they're obviously far more likely to push the button of these un, non-consenting drug tests because they deal with a lot of different you know drug abuse settings. Um, so I don't it, you know it's I know that they're in a tough spot. I don't excuse them because I think that you know if you don't have symptoms you you don't you don't push the button. Um, and I also think that they should perform things on from a medical perspective, not from like this corollary factor. Could be could be something here. Uh, I think that's terribly unmedical and unscientific, uh, and, and from a hard science perspective, maybe from a psychological perspective or something, but not from a hard science piece and a causation piece. Um, yeah, it's I don't it's it, I don't know how it's going to get fixed though. <laughs> that's the million dollar question. How does it get fixed? I don't know. We've heard the story time and time again, and it's just. Me personally, this is my own opinion. The whole thing needs to be torn down and start over. It's just, it's, it's broken. It's, and the girls have said this a million times. It's designed this way. Um, it's not like it couldn't be fixed. It's just, it's a money maker, and it just as anything else in big government, like you had mentioned before, billions of dollars are rolling in through this system. And why would they stop it? Why, why, on their perspective, they're looking at it and said, nothing's broke. Why fix it? <laughs> they're, they're yeah. making billions of dollars. Yeah, well, and I, I think, um, you know, you have a system that's been around for, I don't know about all the CPS organizations in every state, but they've been around for what, 20, 30 years, maybe longer. Um, if, if, yeah, if you have an organization that's been around that long and they're, and they're getting worse, not better, I, I, I think you got you to do something. I think one of the things that I've talked a lot about this with my wife and, and some family and friends um, is, you know, I'm a, I'm a kind of a big believer in the Constitution. I think it's a, a, a pretty brilliant document. Um, and I, I just think that it was designed in a way that protected the citizens, like innocent to prove guilty, due process. I mean, there was, there were a lot of hurdles baked in to making sure that you wouldn't put you, there would be, it would be really difficult to put innocent people in prison or jail, like really difficult to, for the government to take the rights away from the citizens, the right to bear arms, all of those things. And I think, you know, if we talk about why it's one of the ways it's rigged against parents is now you have two systems like I, the way I've heard it described um, is you have two different you have multiple trains so in a lot of now luckily we weren't ever thrust into the criminal system so we we got to kind of keep it a little bit like more straight lined to train a with DHS although it went into the judicial system with the China case and then there's all these other kind of different mechanisms but I think what the, what what they've done is they've created these different pathways which makes it very difficult to, for parents to keep their children. So you have one pathway where they're maybe going the criminal route and they're saying, we're going to criminally charge you for child abuse because we think it's bad enough that we want to put you in jail. And then in tandem with that, they're going to put you through the administrative 
DHS, HHS funnel. And because you're in the criminal funnel, they're going to use that against you in the administrative piece while the criminal piece takes its time to, to, to work through. And then they're going to rail on you and try to take away your kids because you're looked at as a criminal, even though you're technically innocent. But HHS doesn't look at it from an innocent or guilty perspective. They look at it from a 51% preponderance of evidence to put you on the child abuse list. So you could be, you know, counted as a child, child and this is Gabe Woolley's case, right? So they, they put them out as a child on the child abuse registry and they hadn't proved anything criminally and they take the kid. And so when, when the charges criminally are acquitted to where, you know, they're innocent, how do you then reverse the administrative HHS thing when you took the kids for years and then they don't communicate. So now you've got a branch that says you're innocent in the criminal piece, but then we still have your kids and we, and, and we're not going to communicate to the other piece. I mean, it, it, yeah. it's just a kind of an administrative nightmare. I just think to your point, you know, I think you tear it down, but I think, I don't even think you rebuild it. I think it should be, it should stay within the police. And as much as, you know, the police make mistakes and there's a whole lot of issues there too. Well, if we, if we, if we could focus on just fixing the the, the police force and, and that sort of thing and not having to try to fix every single administrative body, which is hundreds of them, if we could really focus on that one body to fix that one piece and make sure that that's done really, really well. And by the way, if you're a child abuser, you should be a criminal because if you're truly a child abuser, that should be a crime. I, I think yes. that that constitutes a crime. Absolutely. If, if you go through due process and you're actually innocent to prove right. guilty, then it then they, they won't prove half of these these things as, no. as child abuse well that's a great point if we had constitutional sheriffs that actually abided by the constitution we could probably solve this problem like overnight because yeah. we had yeah. a we, we had sheriff mack on a while back and he's the head of the constitutional uh i always forget it cpo sa association that's that's constitutional police and peace officers i think it is and he's organized a network of sheriffs across the country to uphold their oath to the constitution i mean go figure like what a novel idea right and so i mean but th listen the sheriff has a ton of power right and if if he's if he's elected duly and he gets in there and the people have elected him and he's going by the constitution yes of course they're going to make mistakes but then you have you have checks and balances along the way right now you're going through a court system where you might actually have a jury of your peers that you get to go before and present your case. And maybe lawyers actually take the case and don't just push it off saying, oh, that's CPS, I'm not getting involved. Or, yeah, or the yeah. ones that do get involved are on in the system, right? I mean, so it doesn't work for, yeah. the, for the parent. So if you have the, the sheriff doing his job, it's this is not hard. This is very simple. It was done this way for, gosh, for 100 years before this. Why not go back to that system? Yeah, and so to give you kind of a, an interesting example with just to add to your point, um, to, to compound this, you know, if you had one system, one track where it was a criminal track and you had to do prosecution and jury selection and all those things, um, it makes it a, from a judicial standpoint, it makes it a pretty easy way to, to be prosecuted or not and then appeal and then you kind of go through the, brand, the, the steps. Well, what's, what was interesting about our case, and our case isn't even super, I mean, it's complicated because of some medical stuff and because of the testing and all that. But it's, but it's also more straightforward than some other cases because we weren't in the criminal system as well. But so even in our case, so we went through the China Child and Eve Assistance and that judge is, and I may be getting some of these terms right because I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but um, the, that judge is a, is a district judge. And so in her, 
in her ruling of our China case, she dismissed it and said, hey, there's no child in need of assistance. But in her writing, she said that DHS did everything they were supposed to do and that what they did was, was, was true. Um, and because she said that, what we were told, and this is, again, this is the Ed Bull, the Deputy uh, Attorney General, what he, his belief as a lawyer was that because she said that and because she's a district judge, now we go to do our appeal and our appeal goes through the administrative judge law through HHS and, and that appeal process. And so that's an administrative judge, which is below the district judge. So what he was saying is that we likely our appeal would will never get resolved the way we want it to because they'll throw it out because a lower judge can't supersede a higher judge. So the only way for us for to get my wife's out of the child abuse list is obviously for HHS to drop it and say we, we messed up, which is what they're trying to do, luckily in our case, which doesn't happen very frequently. But the only other way would be to appeal the appeal and appeal that. And so we'd have to appeal like four or five different times, three or four different times to get the, to the point where we would be above the district judge to where we could actually get this taken care of. What parent is going to do that? You're not going to like you're not going to go for five years because you're going to be fighting it for five years and then you're going to be off the list. So, I think all I'm all I'm saying is I'm trying to reinforce that point of yours is that if you have a one track system, it's criminal or it's not, period. Then you don't have this kind of train B and train A, train one, train two, to where they're conflicting and then they just make it a mess for uh, because because the district judge has no understanding of probably likely has no understanding of what she writes in her report and how that affects the administrative appeal nor does she care and so again you just you compound I and mean, you can see how you make it you make it a simple easy law as a as a legislator and then it goes into this cascading effect of a thousand different options with a lot of pretty incompetent people that don't really understand law that well because they're not lawyers and then they go take kids away from people without even knowing that they're doing anything wrong right Bureaucracy at its finest. Yeah. It's disgusting. I don't know. Yeah. Ladies, what do you think of that? Well, I just want to know why they always uh, cover for DHS. You know, they never want to admit when they're wrong. Um, and I think that's an ego thing. But also, they automatically say, all right, we're going to put your kids in foster care. Why are foster parents assumed to be better than biological parents like why do and if you look at the stats of what happens in the foster system children are six times more likely to die in foster care than in a biological home even if they are abused so why do we constantly look at the foster families as they are better than the biological family why do we think strangers are going to take care of a kid that they're not even like they have no connection to no bond to than the biological family and we continue to do this and we continue to put kids in danger um, and this is where i think the the where we need to stop the brainwashing of people because they automatically assume that foster families are better but it's proven that they're not uh, when i worked in the foster system the kids were sexually abused they were sex trafficked they were missing how many kids does go missing every day that DHS loses and nobody knows about it because it's not reported, it's not on the news, it's not on Amber Alert, it's nobody knows, but they continue to get covered 
over and over. And it's really frustrating that we keep on allowing this to happen because all we're doing is we're putting kids in danger. And not only that, but your wife is now in a child abuse registry and that messes with, that messes with, uh, I don't know if she works, you know, like, or if she even tried to get a job, would she be able to get a job? Mm -hmm. um, she couldn't get a job working at a school or daycare or, or near a school or daycare or church or anything like that, right? Yeah, yeah, she wouldn't, yeah. I mean, you know, we, we go to church and she wouldn't even be able to like work the, the children's room, you know, at church um, because they, I mean, most churches would do a background check and they would then flag it, right? Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's all kinds of consequences to that. I think, um, yeah, yeah, it, it makes things, it makes things incredibly complicated, yeah. And this goes to my point all the time where they don't even check foster parents as much. They don't do drug tests nope. consistently all the time. And look how many tests you, you guys have had to do. So they don't even come close to that for foster families. Well, I, I think this just goes, this goes back to like, you know, the constitutional, you know, way of doing it was innocent until proven guilty. And it doesn't matter how bad the crime is. Now, you know, culture has changed a lot where culture used to kind of hold off generally speaking i felt like you know culture used to kind of hold back and journalists used to hold back to say you know we're not going to say that this person's guilty until the, the, the trial gets you know like right. you know ran through um now today i think there's you know a lot of Im impact from from the news and media on you know people accusing other people of things but 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 according to the law you're innocent until proven guilty so you can't like citizens have so many protections even if they're on trial. I mean, you just can't, you know, ruin a person's life just because they're on trial. And I think it goes back to this totally different setup, 51% um, preponderance. So they, they look at it from a risk factor standpoint. I mean, they just don't look at it like they, the lens in which they look at it is in, just incredibly different. I mean, it's night and day comp compared to how a police or a prosecutor or a, you know, a defendant lawyer would look at it or a judge in the criminal system would look at it. Um, they just look at it so different. I mean, the switch to say you're guilty doesn't get switched until the day the jury comes out with its verdict. I mean, you can't do anything. But in the HHS system, I mean, they're already putting plans together. It's like safety plans and all these things that infringe upon your rights at the very front end. I mean, like they show up to your house and if they don't like the way your house looks, they're going to put a safety plan and say, you can't do this and you can't do this before they've done anything. So they've, they've had, they have practically no evidence and they're going to say, you can't, you know, like for my wife, we had a verbal safety plan because she trusted us a little bit, I guess. Um, and she said that, you know, you know, you're going to, you need to be home with your wife to ensure that she's not taking cocaine uh, while she's nursing and all these other things. So I was supposed to be home. Now, did I follow that? Probably, you know, not, not really, but it was verbal and it wasn't written down. So I, we got more flexibility because she, you know, quote unquote, trusted us probably because we like have a somewhat clean house and, you know, and, and, you know, we, we, talk okay and we, you know, aren't fat and overweight or something, right? But, um, but, but it's, but, but the minute they see you, they're already taking away your rights in most cases, in most cases. So that's a totally different set of rules compared to innocent to proven guilty. And I think that's the issue is if you look at it through this lens, you absolutely can justify the way that they do things because they're looking at it from a different, they're playing in a different field. I mean, they're not playing baseball, they're playing you know, racquetball and, and the judicial system plays baseball. And so yeah. you, you use different tools and you just, you, you can't look at them the same. And I, I don't think, I, I don't, 
until until someone could prove, I think, to the citizens of America that there's a better system or a better document or a better way of doing things than the Constitution, I think they should just follow the Constitution and be required to follow the Constitution until they can prove to the U.S. that there's a better system. But they haven't been able to prove that, I don't think, <laughs> in my opinion. Yes, right. but but Michael, if they use the Constitution, they'd all be in jail. <laughs> These people yeah, would be in true. prison. So well, they're not, not going to... Not with immunity, though. They would just, they would just, you know, they well, would really The immunity, you know? I don't, I, yeah, that's another whole, man, we need to do a show on this immunity thing. Uh, yeah. But, you know, we've had, again, I, we've had so many people on that have talked about the Constitution just not even being at play. Like, they laugh at it. They scoff at it. Like, ah, the Constitution. Pff, what's that document? Who cares? We don't use that here. Yeah. There's no oversight. There's no one looking over their shoulders. Nobody even knows this is going on. I mean, we still, every now and then, I'll get a comment or something, you know, in one of our videos, and people are like, Wait, this is really happening? Like, like it's it's shocking to the conscience because you're thinking, well, wait, we live in the greatest country on earth, the freest nation on earth. There's no way this could be going on. However, I do think people are waking up because they've seen the corruption at such levels in you know politics or even in <laughs> during the COVID thing. People are starting to see, okay, well, maybe things aren't on the straight and narrow like I thought they were or like I was told. Um, they're questioning. They're they're using critical thinking. Thank God. But it's again, I when you don't have the cover of the law of the land, how do you fight this? I mean, that's what everybody's counting on. Like, like the government's number one job is to protect its citizens, especially the family. The family is the core of the nation. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, yet I'll, they're tearing the, some... they're tearing apart by ripping families apart. Well, there, there's so many things that fall apart when that happens, but you you can see all kinds of little fractures in, in the laws that are made in 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 the U.S. with how it's broken apart the, the nuclear family and how we don't look at things from a nuclear family perspective. I mean, there's so many little things that like disalign or there's they look at it from one lens over here and a different lens from over here. Um, I mean, there's so, so many ways in which which that happens. And so. You know, if, if you're constantly playing, by, or this person gets to play by this different rule, this person gets to play by this different rule. I mean, so, so I'll give you some examples. In our case, um, my wife had to have her own attorney. I had to have my own attorney. Our kids had their own, own attorney provided by the state, right? The guardian ad litem, they call it, um, for their interest. Um, but we're a married couple. I'm sorry, but that means one. that means one attorney. We're one unit. Like, we don't get multiple units. Um, like, like we should have one attorney. So I, so, I mean, it was like, you know, I'm in our marriage, this can be different for other marriages, but I'm the one who would traditionally in our marriage would deal with lawyers or like stressful situations like this, right? I'm the one who's supposed to lead through that. Um, my wife just doesn't want to do it and, and she's not good at it. So like, I, 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 if I'm a good post, you know, I want to play the post position. If she's a good point guard, she should play the point guard position, Right. And that's what a healthy marriage, sorry, what? It's a team. Yeah, it's and you play different positions, I think generally speaking, right? So that's how our marriage would play out. But I, could, I couldn't play that position because every time I try to get on the phone with my wife's attorney, with her, like with my wife in the room, not saying I wanna have the conversation without my wife, but with my wife in the room, I was told that I had to leave the conversation. Like I couldn't wow. be on the phone call, even on our appeals hearing. We're, we're doing our appeals hearing, and um, the, the judge says, like, my wife goes, hey, my husband's here as well. Uh, I said, hey, <laughs> I'm here, you know. And um, the judge says, you, you need to leave this call. You need, 
you need to make sure that you're not in the same room because you can't be hearing this call. And I, I'm thinking to myself, we're a married couple. Like, what are we doing here? Like you, like I said to my, my attorney said, said, well, the reason they do this is because you have a lot of couples that disagree. And so then now you open up liability where they don't agree. And so now they're fighting. And so now you need two different lawyers to, and I said, I said, if they, if they're fighting and they can't agree on how to, how to like deal with their kids from legal perspective and how to work with one attorney, then tell the, the attorney should say, you either need to get a divorce so you can use two attorneys or you're going to use one attorney and you guys make a decision. And then you're going to go with the, with that one decision. That's how it should work. But, but sure. because we don't truly believe in the, this, you know, old fashioned, if you want to call it way of doing things, which has been done for thousands of years and has worked pretty well for, for the most part. Um, we've just, we've broken so many of those things down without, I think, totally understanding the consequences. And now we're starting to realize, oh crap, you know, the family unit's starting to, to fall apart. We're st starting to attack our own citizens. Um, you know, I went from super patriotic, patriotic to where like, if my wife said, Hey, I don't really like, we should just move to Mexico. I'd be like, okay, fine. I'll, we'll just, well, I'll work remotely. You know, I'll make a bunch of money in the U S remotely, but I won't have to abide by any of the rules from the U S. Um, and I'm someone that like, I think I the U S need to stay in the U S I would think I don't, maybe not, but you know, <laughs> if you attack citizens, the, the ones that are, the ones that you want are probably going to leave, you know, probably, you know, that makes sense. Having two lawyers, if you're getting divorced. Okay. We all understand that. But for crying yeah. out loud, to have the you know the mother, the father have their own lawyers, the children have their own lawyers. There's there's only one reason they're doing that. It's to create the division. It's not to. It's oh, you guys might argue. What are you? You're gonna argue over getting your children back? I mean, yeah. give me a break. Like this is the dumbest. Like ah, uh, it just these people. They think we're idiots. Honestly, I swear to God, they think we're idiots. They literally, they do that to so many people because it's all about separation of family and divide and conquer. They did it to me too. They, my husband and I at the time were not arguing. We were not fighting. We were being attacked by them. And they came in and barged in and they said, both of you need two different attorneys. And we're like, why? This is so weird. And then they went through the, we went through the whole process with two attorneys. We ended up firing them and then they came in with two more and we're like, what is going on here? But the, our situation started in juvenile court and then they actually subpoenaed my husband for spousal support in family court. So that's how they moved it from juvenile court to family court by hmm. subpoenaing him and summoning him to court for spousal support. And he literally sat there and he's like, what are you doing? I'm not getting divorced here. Like, what is the problem? And so, that's but that was their only way to get it into family court. They have to do it to separate the family. And, and that's double the only agenda. And double the fees. Yeah. yeah. Now you gotta pay for two attorneys or three. It's yeah. crazy. I mean, yeah, yeah, and my, your poor wife. Yeah, well, and, and so she, she's, I mean, this was really stressful. Well, for so many reasons, it's stressful on her. But one of the many reasons is that we're playing a game of telephone. So, and, you know, you know, I probably didn't handle it as well as I should because I would sometimes get frustrated because, you know, my wife would handle it this way. You know, we'd have a conversation and I would say, hey, this is the way we need to handle it. She's stressing out because she's feeling like she's under pressure because I'm like, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm trying to be very particular because our kids are potentially going to get taken away. So I'm being very particular and saying, this is exactly how I want the conversation to go. Um, you know, A, B, C, you know, this is the way we need to, if this happens, ask this question. And she's like losing it because she's like, this is not like, this is not what I want to be doing. 
And so then she doesn't ask certain questions or she it goes in a totally different direction. And, you know, our attorneys are, you know, attorneys that are in the system. So they just want to like do whatever HHS wants them to do. So they, they're not really trying to like, they're not mavericks that are trying to like break the system. They're just trying to say, you know, how can we just follow whatever HHS wants, which is not really what we wanted to do other than the fact that we wanted them out of our lives. And so it was super stressful because then, you know, my wife would have the call. I would, I would listen to it. And then I would, you know, essentially, you know, being a dude, I'm just like critiquing her, which is terrible. Like, that's not my, what my wife, she wants to hear like, you know, Hey, tell me about the call. How'd it go? Do, how do you feel? You know, like, but I wasn't doing that because I'm like on a mission trying to make sure our kids don't get taken away. And so it was miserable. And, and of course it led to, you know, us creating kind of fractures in our marriage that we then had to like, I mean, we, we said, you know, what a couple, uh, probably a month ago, we're like, we need a do over. We need to like, like, what can we share that we don't know about each other? How can we start over? Like we, we like, it's the first day we've ever been married because there's a lot of things we got to like, you know, mend back together because of this insane sin. And, you know, it's strengthened our marriage. In a lot of then. Yeah. So they literally caused that division. And that's what I was saying. Like your poor wife, because she's so used to you handling it and she's got the charges and then mm -hmm. she needs you to handle it. And she's uh, trying to get, you know, like that puts her at a, a disadvantage because she's not the one that does handle that. That's what I'm saying. Like your poor wife, like, I was like, please take charge, like do this for me. Um, but then it causes that division and that's what they, that was their purpose, right? Mm -hmm. To, to cause that and cause that disadvantage and make her feel the way that way. And, and also to get in her head and make her think, well, maybe I did do, do cocaine, even if she didn't do cocaine, you know, um, yeah. it's just crazy that the games. Yeah. Well, and they it, also it, know the bio, they know the biology. Right. I mean, men are more critically and focused, right? Where that's what our job is. That's how we're wired. Women are more emotional creatures. Not all women in general. I mean, this is just a general thing. But let's face it, and I know my marriage is very similar. My wife likes me to take control of those things, and there's things she doesn't want to do. But you get a mama bear involved, and her kids are she's gonna be like, What's going on? I need to know. Of course she would. And they know that. They know that's gonna create division, and that's what they're hoping for. Yeah. And I, I would even say, I would even go further with that. Like, you know, there are, there are some women that are insanely like tactical and strategic, but you put them in a situation where you're going to take away their kids and even the most tactical and strategic woman that just crushes it in business and does all these other things, they're going to struggle with it because they're going to be insanely emotional because you're going to, you're trying to take away their kids. I mean, there's, there's something so much more visceral for, just my, my opinion, there's so much more, something more visceral of a connection between a mom and her children compared to a father. Like I can step back and if I want, if I need to take a little bit of risk to get some reward in regards to our, the children, then I'll do it. But for my wife has a harder problem with that. And so again, you could be the, the most rockstar tactical, you know, mom boss, and you're, you're still not going to do super well in a situation where somebody's threatening to take away your kids. And, and, and by the way, you know, all, almost all of the charges, or I should say many of the charges are on the mother, not the father. Now there are charges on fathers too, but like when you talk about medical, for sure, it's a lot of times on the mother, not on the father. Um, and that th then makes it even more difficult because to your point that now you're really like stretching those bounds and allowing that team to not play very well because we're playing two different positions we're not familiar with. Yeah. hundred percent. Well, I'd love to say this is, you know, something I've never heard before. It's just becoming such commonplace in America. 
people need to wake up. They need to do something. I mean, that's why Rescue the Fosters was formed. I mean, these these ladies have, you know, obviously Danielle's experienced it. Sylvia was in the system. They're trying to expose it. We're all trying to expose it. But it's, man, you we are up against it because it's it's a lot of money, folks. That's what I don't think people understand, that there is a ton of money funding a lot of budgets, a lot of states' budgets through this system. And uh, a lot of it doesn't matter what the letter is next to the politician, whatever side you find yourself on politically. I hate to break it to you. <laughs> they're all in on it, whether they're knowingly or unknowingly. Um, you know, our mission is to eventually talk to these people face to face, hopefully in D.C. at some point and um, let them know what's going on and tell them, hey, we're putting you on notice right now. Like you, you're either child traffickers or you're not let's let's end this nonsense we can do better uh, yeah yeah I, I talked to a guy um that was uh, uh i may be getting this name wrong but i think it was institute the institute for justice i think it was called um their national you know entity um i think based out of washington dc and they said that they're specifically their full or um full focus is specifically on uh immunity so government immunity and they said that they they started four years ago, and they think it's going to take twenty to thirty years to accomplish their goal of basically allowing citizens to have the right to sue the government. You know, basically limiting the immunity. Now, there should should there be some immunity? Maybe I don't know, but um, but the amount of immunity that the government has is pretty insane. So, like for example, we 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 likely it would likely be impossible for us to sue according to this guy from the Institute of Justice, uh, it would likely be impossible for us to sue HHS, even with what happened um, because of their immunity clause. And but they, but they're saying it's going to take 20 years, probably millions and millions of dollars, just this one organization that's only focused on immunity, just one little sliver of what's going on in the whole system. Uh, and they think it's going to take 20 to 30 years. I mean, one of the things that was eye opening to me is just thinking, thinking about all of the precedents in our legal system that isn't super productive for the citizens um, and how it's going to take a long time because they, if they have previous precedents, then they're going to use that to continue that precedence. So it's really difficult to like change the, the slow moving boat of the legal system. And that's, I think, a deeper seated problem than probably, you know, the, the cops or uh, you know, even HHS. Like, how do you change an entire judicial system that's now you know, allowing these things to happen with these government organizations, you have to change the precedents, which is really difficult to change precedents. That's, I think, the, one of my scary parts that I've found. You know, I don't ever want to be in the judicial, judicial system even uh, right. because there's a lot of awful precedents that have been set. Right. So. Uh, Russell Warren in the chat wants to know who needs to wake up. It's basically everybody, <laughs> middle America especially. Like just average Joe citizen going to work, doing their nine to five, going to the soccer game at night having babies, getting married, all, just everyday life, our culture has been infiltrated by these predators. It's, it's a rigged system against families. And I know, you know, maybe, thank God, you know, Russell, in your case, maybe you don't know anybody that this has happened to. I, I pray to God that's not the case you know, or the case for you. But in others' cases, um, we've just seen it off too, too often to ignore it. Um, and it's become systemic. And it's designed this way because it's a lot of money. So, Russell, what we're trying to do is get the word out. We just need more people to hear stories just like Michael and his wife's 
Uh, we've had plenty of other guests on this show telling the exact same story. Uh, it might you know, have little nuances, little different thing here or there, but it's the same thing. And it's the, the family court system is rigged against the family. Literally rigged. There's no oversight. Nobody gets to challenge them. It's their way or the highway most of the time. Now, thank God in Michael's case and his wife's case that it does seem to be that this is going to work out in their favor in the long haul. You know, and hopefully they get to sue and get get some money out of this because it's ridiculous what they've done to you and your wife. Um, but there has to be justice. If the family's going to be torn apart in this country, we don't have a country anymore. It's over. It's game over. Yeah, we have to wake I, up to that. I think it, I think it's super important that like we come together as communities. You know, like like if sh sure, how much can we prevent a medical system from reporting one of their patients? That's going to be a difficult uphill battle. Hopefully, there's some legal precedents. My wife and I are hoping that we can change them that legal precedence to where they can't do these tests unless they have probable cause. But that that's difficult. But you know, there's so many people that that a neighbor will report them to HHS, you know, like they don't know their neighbor. They think their neighbor's a little weird. Maybe they're a little crunchy, whatever. And they report them to HHS. We need to live in communities to where we can talk to each other. We can, we can have conversations. We can ask about like, Hey, I just noticed this, you know, when I was over there yesterday, you know, like I've seen, I've heard of people getting reported because they, the kids were running barefoot in the lawn and then escalated to the kids getting taken away. I mean, like we're Americans every day. Yeah, I, I do too. It's, they call it grounding or something, right? Um, <laughs> but but you know we I need to like, yeah we need to like talk to each other and like be like unified that we're Americans and like not report each other to HHS to go talk to someone and say how are you doing? Do you have a problem? Can I help? Like let's not take you to HHS or this government bureaucracy and have them take away your kids. Yeah. We can actually help or your parents or grandparents or you know something. Um, that to me is like. You know, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's a huge uphill battle, and I love that you guys are doing this to try to change the legality and the legislative branch and all that, and trying to elect different people, and we can vote to to try to hire the best people for our reps. But yeah. just simply like not calling on somebody and having a conversation and seeing are they okay? Do do they need medical help? Do they need to, you know, do they need you know drug abuse help? Like let's do that first, and try to try to just not call HHS so that they, they don't get involved, and then. You know, there's going to be the crazy fighters like you guys, and I'm I probably in this camp too, that just wants to burn the system down and get these legislators to like wake up and say no more to HHS. Um, figure Figuratively burn it down. <laughs> yeah, figure, sure. yeah, yeah, <laughs> course, yeah. No, no, no violence, right? But, um, uh, but you know, I, I think that I think you got to do both. I think you got to work it from 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 both angles. Um, and Somebody that's how we. Just, uh, sorry. <laughs> Uh, somebody just texted me and asked, like, what do you do in this situation if there's like a mother, like she apparently knows the mother who's on drugs and going through the court process and they're trying to foster her children. And so the thing about that is that why are we not helping the families? Like you're saying, like, why, why is the government stepping in to destroy the family? What's going to happen with a mother who's actually really on drugs is if you take her children away, she's not going to have any reason to get sober. She's going to be catapulted more into darkness. And then you're just throwing the mother in, in a ditch and you're not caring about the mother or the family. So if the government's going to be involved in any way, why are they not coming in to help the whole family? 
help the mother get to rehab with the child or whatever has to happen. We Communities do have to come together. But it, the thing is, is that it's incentivized to destroy the family. They're getting money to do it because of Title IV-E. So we have to change that. We have to change the incentivization of the foster care system so that that isn't a thing at all. Um, that's the only way I can see that we can really fix it is changing that part right there. No, but why does no the government have to be involved anyway? Why? I mean, we, right. we can have faith-based institutions. Or you, I mean, communal groups. I don't. There's other ways. It doesn't yeah. have to be government. Why does government have to stick their nose in our business? And, and I, I think if you look at the setup of, like, again, if you go to the the judicial system, you have you have a, a, a usually you know lawyers are pretty smart generally speaking. Not all of them are amazing, but like they have to go through the bar. They, you know, they have to be pretty competent to to pass the bar. And so you have in the judicial system, you have to have a pretty competent person as the defendant lawyer. You have to have a pretty competent person as the prosecutor. Uh, you have a pretty competent judge. You have a jury. Like you have all these different mechanisms. In HHS's case, they're, I mean, really, they're not criminal, but but they're they're the prosecutor, they're the defendant, they're the rehabber, they're the social worker. I mean, they're everything. And so I think what we have to realize is you can't do everything at the same time because if you're the person that's trying to help them out and you're also the prosecutor, how can you really help somebody out when you're the prosecutor? You, you can't, I mean, you're playing both roles, you're playing both hats. And so I think for, for a mom that's like in a situation where she's you know addicted to drugs or something, I mean, I think you gotta figure out how to, how to find some support, go to church, like see if somebody will fund you to actually go to a legit rehab center. Um, that's not like like that's not through HHS um, to, to to try to be proactive outside of their system so that they can see that you're trying to to to, to fix things um, because you're not going to get I mean HHS is again they're the prosecutor and the rehabber and the everything um, and there's just no way you can have a system that's that's going to succeed that way and uh, and then you know the best case scenario is to Gino's point we just we get them totally out that'd be cool <laughs> right. Yes. Well, also to another point, um, not every parent that they say is a drug addict is <laughs> clearly. So I apparently I've been in a drug cartel I wasn't aware of. And your wife is now on this registry and she's never done drugs. So, you know, you can't always trust when they say and that's we, we've talked about this a million times. But the foster parents are never told the truth ever. They're always lied to. And and the foster parents in my situation, the very first ones, they hated me because they thought that I was this major like druggy criminal. And I'm like, what is happening? These people hate me and they don't even know me. And I literally was completely innocent. So they just, uh, yeah, we need to get them out. <laughs> yeah. So one, one thing that, that I think is interesting in the state of Iowa, I'm not sure this is the case everywhere, but um, now I, I can understand why they've desi designed some of these like systems, but in the state of Iowa, you can be a foster parent and then you have the option to adopt the, th the foster child. And I get why they do that because they're trying to like be like centered around the kid. They're obviously not centered around the family, but they're centered around the child, right? And that's what sometimes disrupts the family, right? Or many times disrupts the family. But um, but if you allow the foster parent to adopt then there's, there's by default going to be a conflict of interest in many cases. You'd have to have an amazing person that is rooting for the mom full heartedly that still wants to adopt the kid if it's possible. That's, that's really difficult in, in someone's heart, especially as a mother, 
it would be really difficult, I would think, to compartmentalize this, you know, like one part of my heart wants them to, for reunification, the other part wants to adopt them and, and make them a part of my family. And I think that that we have to be real with some of these functions to your point of like, uh, you know, having no resources for rehab or, or actual like helping families out. Um, we have to understand like where the fundamentals and the, and the pathways and follow the money, right? Where does the money go? Um, and if it's allowing a foster parent to adopt, then we have to be real and say, they're likely not going to want to support the biological mother. They're going to want to support the HHS worker to try to convince them to, you know, to, to adopt. And that's not good for the family. And, and to your point, when they're, when they have no relationship, when the, when the biological mom and the foster parent has uh, no relationship with each other because they kind of compartmentalize them and they tell them how awful they are and all these different things, you're of course, it's going to of course make it even harder to root and to try to assist and help that person. That's, that's likely in the most need, right? Like the person that's in the most need, if they're actually doing drugs or doing something they shouldn't, the, 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 that parent's the one who needs the most support, the most, you know, whatever, and they're getting the least amount of support. And the foster mom gets a ton of support. The social worker gets some kind of support, I guess. Uh, but the mom that needs the most support gets none of the support. But, yeah. uh, you know, it used to be like this. Um, it was before, uh, well, before liberalism, we'll call it liberalism, and uh, social media and all of that. Um, it, it was more of like, I mean, I don't know if you guys grew up like this, but I, I grew up where if I went over my friend's house, they were allowed to spank me, you know, if they were, you know, like the families came together, we borrowed sugar from each other. Um, it was like we talked to each other. We knew what we, we were doing, but it was like almost as soon as like we had um, social media, we didn't really communicate together. You know, like the iPhones, we were more on iPhones. Like you'll be in the same house and you'll be texting across the house where, you know, like it's like complete society has completely changed and it's, it's made us distance each other and even kids in this generation they don't know how to uh they have social anxiety everybody has social anxiety I, i'm like man we were always out playing and getting yeah. to know each other and stuff like that we never were like on social media and we didn't like now nobody talks to each other like you said they don't talk to each other they don't know what's going on they call cps whenever they get mad at them but if we would actually get back to the traditional way, just as you were trying to do with your family, traditional, you know, then we would get back to helping each other and we could actually provide support instead of causing chaos. You know what's crazy? I used to play kickball in my street with my neighbors until the yeah, streetlights no. came on. Do you see that anywhere? No. Do you ever see kids in the street? Nope. They, they wouldn't they, even know what kickball they, is. <laughs> <laughs> and then I would hear my mom from down the street, Daniel. Right. You didn't you didn't go in until it got dark. That's when you went in. <laughs> you yeah. weren't allowed in when until it no. got dark. <laughs> if the street lights came on, then you were supposed to be home. That was when you, you know, I, mean, yeah. I don't know. And then, you know, luckily with my name, if my mom called me, I was the only Gino around. So that, that was easy. But if you were little Johnny or you're Michael, for instance, I'm sure it was a little more difficult. Oh, that's not my mom. That must be somebody else's mom. So you got to stay out a little longer. 
Um, it was, it was a different world. You know, I'm thankful for the technology we have now. It's allowing us to do this right now. Okay. So, I mean, there's, there is good aspects of it, but it has to be limited for sure for families. And it has, it, it's again, something that, you know, if you look back 15 years and you said, oh, this is going to happen. We're going to have this technology. You'll be able to do this, 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 and that. People have said, oh yeah, yeah, that's going to be great. That's going to bring a lot of people together. It, yes, kind of, but like you said, like, I, look, I'm going to be honest. My next door neighbor is right next to me. I don't know. I know one of their names. Okay. The other side, I know them very well. We help them out all the time, but the other ones, I, I hardly ever see them. And we've been here five years and I've probably talked to them a handful of times. So I, again, like it's this, but they're younger. They're a lot younger and it's just a different culture. It's a different way of living. And I'm okay with that. Hey, we're each free and, you know, thank God we still have some freedoms and you're allowed to do things, you know, a specific way or, or to your own liking. But at the same time, it has created a, a weird division between us. And, you know, especially politically. I mean, it used to be able to talk about politics. And, yeah, you know, you get a little heated or whatever. And, you know, and then you laughed and drank a beer after. It was like no big deal. Now you just separate and never talk again. <laughs> it's like, or, or you get called names on social media and like you're like you're Hitler, literally calling you Hitler. And you're like, what? What are you? I haven't murdered like six million Jews. What are you talking about? Like I don't. It's like it's craziness out there. Yeah. And you've that, and you've got systems like we're talking about tonight that just kind of fly under the radar. No one really knows about it, and they just keep doing what they're doing. And we kind of go to sleep at the wheel until you're like, wait, no way, that's not happening. Come on, that's got to be some kind of conspiracy theory. I don't mm -hmm. know. There, there was this conference that I listened to this gal. Um, she talked about how society has changed where we used to uh, we used to be willing to take more risk. And I, I associate that with having courage to take the risk. Um, and she, she talked about a lot of things. But one of the things she talked about is like, you know, our insurance, our, uh, our medical uh, system, right? Like they've gotten so expensive and so big because we're no longer willing to take any risk. Um, and think about like, what has the U.S. done from a pioneering step? I mean, we used, we used to like go to the moon and stuff, you know, and now you got a few people that like in Elon Musk, like you got a few Americans that are like kind of interested in that. And I, I mean, I think I, I think about this all the time. Like if you have a society that's courageous, that's stoic and courageous and is willing to sacrifice today to, you know, to have courage to make tough decisions to to, you know, do what's better for their family in the long term. Um, that to me is a society that it tends to be a little bit more stable to where, you know, you can talk about politics, you can talk about things, you can go, you know, confront somebody, you, you, you know, if you have to fight somebody, you fight, like, you can do those things because there's courage. And now you look at a society that is lacking courage, and then there's some people that have some courage to do things differently, and the system attacks them big time, um, like the Hitler and all, and all the other things. And that's the scariest part is like, what will win? Is, is it the, the stoic, courage, courageous person? Or is it the, like one thing that I think about is, I think so all, all inclusive, right? Inclusivity. So when, when I think of like, I used to go to the Y when I was younger and played sports at the Y, which is like classic, everybody does it. Um, and one of their things on the banners was respect. There was never an integrity and some other ones, right? But there was never a sign for inclusivity. And I think to myself, what's a higher value just like saying that i'm okay with you or that i respect you and we can we can be willing to disagree and so it takes courage to have respect for those that you disagree with 
it doesn't take courage to be inclusive because then you, then we have a mushy everything goes we don't have any opinions um like every my opinion is everything is exclusive and inclusive just in different ways. So if I am a country club that, I, that my membership fees a million dollars a year, then I'm, I, I, have a, I, have a few, I have a few amount of members because most people can't pay a million dollars a year, but I'm inclusive in some ways because if you have a million dollars, I'm totally inclusive, but I'm exclusive for the people that don't have a million dollars. And so when I, when I think of inclusivity, it's just like this kind of made up term that doesn't mean anything. It just, it's the least courageous the thing that's going to offend the, the least amount of people. And if our, if our highest value that we're trying to achieve is trying to offend the least a number of people, then you can't love, you can't have courage. You can't have the values that are actually important because those are values that are much higher on the hierarchy. And you're going to, everybody's going to attack the people that actually have the courage and the love and the, and the things that we want. Yes, that's so true. Oh my gosh. That's so true. That's, well said. I really I, I, like how you said yeah, I've often thought that same thing. Like it, respect has always been my number one thing in my home. Like I've always taught my kids respect. Respect is earned. Like you, and, and, you listen, you don't treat me right. Guess what's going to happen? <laughs> You're not going to get your way. Like yeah. and, and I mean, the respect going, has been lost. Yeah. Can you imagine going to your kids and being like, you know, you need to be, you need to be more inclusive. What are you doing? Like, yeah. I could not imagine saying that to my kids ever. Like never. I, I would say you respect that person even though you can totally disagree with that person, but I will never tell my kids mm -hmm. that you need to be more inclusive. I mean, it's, there's no courage in being inclusive. Like I want him to, I want him or her to disagree with somebody and then give them a hug and say, I respect you for your different viewpoints. Let's go have a beer to your point. Right. Well, uh, let me I give you a perfect example. Oh, oh. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Daniel. All right. I was just okay. going to say the, the most, this is what kills me about inclusivity, right? As a Christian, I guarantee you, <laughs> I will not be included in a whole bunch of things because of where I stand on my faith. But that's okay, right? But if I didn't want, you know, I don't know, whatever, name your religion, you know, which with the Wiccans or something <laughs> coming into my church, all of a sudden, no, 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 you got to let them into your church. But I wouldn't be allowed into theirs. Like, so when does inclusiveness, where is the line? There is like, it's only usually against one certain, if you're a white male, that's, that's a big one too, <laughs> which I happen to fall in, man, I'm in two of the categories, white and Christian. So um, <laughs> not doing good. I checked two, two boxes off, but it's, it's hilarious to me. Like this whole inclusivity thing, it's, it's always about division. That's what it ends up doing. And I don't yeah. know the master plan, you know, when they came up with this and all that stuff, were they really knowing in their mind, like, oh yeah, this is brilliant. Like ultimately it's going to divide them. I mean, I think they did. I think it was very nefarious from the beginning. I don't think anybody was sitting back going, oh yeah, this is such a wonderful idea, this inclusiveness, and it'll bring the, the country together and bring the world together. They, I don't think they were thinking that. I think it was quite the opposite. And they knew that this is going to happen. You go back to the race riots of the sixties here in my hometown, you know, near where I live. That was a lot of this stuff was created to create the division. That's mm -hmm. what it's it's been about, and it's and I think like a lot of people are catching on to that. Thank God. I think there's I know even people in my own family that don't necessarily agree with me politically or even with my faith. They're starting to see it, so that gives me a little bit of hope that there are people going. You know, they're critically thinking about. They're they're not just being fed some spoonful of you know government garbage and saying take it it's good for you it's it's the help pyramid 
you know, the what it was it grains at the top and whatever the stupid pyramid was that never worked and was not for your health. <laughs> I mean, it's everything's been a lie. Yeah. yeah sorry, I, I've, okay, I've, done. <laughs> oh, sorry, I've, I've heard a lot of people talk about like um, more so re recently, like they talk, they called it the uniparty and they basically say Democrats and Republicans are all a part of the uniparty. And I, I think that that is the, like, that's what we should be looking at is saying, are you a part of the establishment? Do you want to keep things status quo? Or do you want to actually like reform, reform the things that need to be reformed? So I, and I think this is maybe, this is fringe, but, um, you know, AI is going to change the way the world works. And, you know, before you, you, you kind of wanted some structures and systems and you you didn't necessarily sometimes want people to totally think on their own right i think of like the 70s right the us kind of suppressed this hippie you know psychedelic kind of craziness right um mm -hmm. and the, the citizens were kind of wanting to do their own thing they were you know combating vietnam and and the, you know the us said you know what settle down we, you know communism is bad and you need to you need to shut your mouth and like go to work and go make some money right go have a family um Think about AI though, like AI is going to allow people to have, like, I think of like, even like the apps on your phone, right? Like, imagine if I, like, I'm already seeing a different experience than you are on your, when you're scrolling through social media, but think about how AI will, will change that even more radically um, to where you, you have the, you have more of an ability for people to be more individualized, which is going to be scary, but also it will be a little bit freeing in the sense that we don't have to abide by these huge institutions to tell us what to do. What's the food pyramid? You know, how do we eat? When do we eat? How many calories do we eat? Um, you know, like what rules should we follow? Well, it, it's scary. Like from, from a Christian's perspective, like it's scary to me because I think there is like this idea of one truth and, and this, like, we should be searching for like, how do, how do we refine that and, and, and understand that, that the truth, um, because there should be one set of one, like one idealistic, like truth. Um, but there is also something I think really cool about not like plugging into these massive systems like the hospital system or like the food pyramid or like, you know, whatever other systems that we're being told we have to follow. It's pretty freeing to say, oh, like we could live around the world and we don't have to be tied down to the U.S. We can, you know, all kinds of things like that, that I think change the game. Um, so I, I'm, I think it's going to be, I think we have scarier times coming up because these systems, these archaic institutions are breaking down and people are starting to go, you know, to your point, they're waking up and going, these are breaking down. And then you add AI in the mix and then you're going to, you're going to see, you're going to see some craziness, I think. Um, and then hopefully, hopefully we come together, you know? <laughs> the, yeah. The AI thing that is terrifying on so many different levels. I, I mean, I've thought about it from every angle, I think. Um, and I could definitely see it being used as a tool to, for, of influence, right? And whatever, and this is, you know, if, whether you're far right, far left, whatever, it's easy to manipulate the masses. I mean, think about the propaganda that like Stalin used, right? Or even Hitler. And you now, if they had AI, <laughs> oh my gosh, like game over. Well, I, I personally think this is, again, my personal preference or personal opinion, but like, I think with with better technology and and more divisive technology and all those things, I think you 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 don't want a government that's going to be more authoritarian. You want citizens that are going to be more 
I'm trying to say this, that's not super like Christian focused because I think that, you know, there's, there's room outside of that, but like more conscientious or more like faithful to some higher being or like something to where like we care a lot about courage and love and honesty and integrity and these like really high values. Um, uh, and we don't care about you know, inclusiveness or political correctness. Um, it's going to require like a, a better community of, of people. And we're, we're seeing the exact opposite of that right now. We're seeing technology that's really advanced and doing some amazing things and some horrific things. And then archaic institutions that want to be more authoritarian and then citizens that aren't waking up that like just follow the rules and, you know, aren't really living a life that's, that's in search of deep meaning. And this is, this is the, this is the mixing pot that we get right now. Right. And, and somehow we have to come out of it and say, we need to be a better human species. And, you know, I think obviously from the Christian approach, it's, it's, I think pretty easy to understand what that looks like, but you know, there's going to be other people from other countries that also need to be looking at that and saying, how do we contribute in a, in a positive way? If we're going to be creating AI, that's going to be used in another country. Um, it's not, it's, it's not going to require citizens to be less conscientious or less faithful with something. It's going to require a lot more faithfulness, I think. Yeah, you just explained our founding fathers. <laughs> I mean, they that's what they did. Some of them were deists, some of them were unbelievers, yeah. some of them were Christians, but they understood that if if government was subject to a higher power and the people, that would keep them in check for the most part if people did their part, right? And, and kept doing what they were supposed to be doing. They understood that. They came from a tyrannical government. But see, when you leave God out of the mix, whatever God you're worshiping, obviously I have my opinions on who god is but i get it there's other people if you do live to that higher moral standard of okay this all-knowing being knows and sees what i do and there's checks and balances in my own life then that's gonna be you know uh, cast out to others and i'm gonna treat my neighbor as myself i'm gonna have respect for other people and their own beliefs and what even politically whatever if they disagree with me i don't have to hate them but that's where we've we've come we've come to a point where it is about you just have to hate that person you can't speak yeah. to them anymore mm -hmm. and that's by design i really believe that has been by design sorry daniel go ahead oh it's okay um i was just gonna say i don't really believe in the terminology artificial intelligence because it's an oxymoron because all intelligence comes from one source mm -hmm. and what's happening is that there are people that are deceived and they're getting intel they're getting information from other sources and then they're kind of putting that into technology and programming it a certain way and what we're seeing actually take place is that that program technology is actually turning on the people that are receiving real intelligence from a real source which is our creator so they're actually flipping and they're perverting the intelligence and they're attacking us the people that are re receiving true information and so i'm seeing that a lot in the courts they're actually starting to use this program technology in the court systems to make decisions falsely against people that are innocently trying to serve god so i it's very, very dangerous. And we have to figure out like who actually is controlling this technology because whoever is controlling it is the ones programming it. And what are they programming it to do? Yeah. So yeah. Right. I, think I disagree. I disagree with you, Daniel. I'm shutting down the stream. <laughs> <laughs> no, <I'm just> 
<laughs> Just kidding. Exactly. No, I actually agree with you 100%. <laughs> I think, I think the, the, I think the best thing we can probably rely on is, is, is that if we have enough diversity, um, and what I mean by diversity is like, uh, like I think of like a true capitalistic market has a lot of diversity so people can make choices. And so it's kind of like, you know, the, the survival of the fittest a little bit, right? Uh, and then hopefully you have citizens that, you know, are faithful and, and understand what's the, the most high, high moral, like kind of thing that they want to purchase. Um, but I, I think I, I'm hopeful, I, I think, maybe I'm too much of an optimist in this way, but like, I'm hopeful that you'll have, we'll hopefully have more diversity and more options in an AI driven kind of capitalistic system than we did previously. Um, that, but that's gonna, that's gonna basically have it with a caveat that the government stays out of the way and, does, and, and doesn't get in the way and become more authoritarian. Um, but to me, like that's, that's my hope is that like, everybody can have their own app, everybody can make their own, you know, podcast or you know can, they can do whatever they want um and that there's there's not it's not like we're all controlled by like one like google gemini you know or oh chat gpt like if we're all controlled by one ai that we can't even manipulate in our own way like imagine if i had my own ai that i could coach to to be the way i want it to be that i could say hey there is a god hey this is what my god tells me you know this you know this is what i want to coach my ai um, if we could do that, I think it'd be pretty amazing because it's scary and amazing. It's scary because everybody could have their own God. Uh, it could be played by different rules, but it's also empowering in the sense that, you know, if we, if we have the belief that, you know, good will win, you know, you know, God will defeat evil, right? Like the, if we have those kind of like optimistic perspectives, then I think it could be really cool um, and scary at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Problem it's always is nobody wants like to that. make their own decisions. They want to be mm -hmm. controlled and they want their decisions to be made for them. And they want to lay around and watch Netflix and order DoorDash. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know all about that. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm maybe not as DoorDash. optimistic as you are, Michael, with the whole AI thing. I understand what you're saying. I just have a bad feeling like, you know, fire can be good and fire can burn down your house. So it's with me, there's just, it, it's, I don't know. I think of Terminator <laughs> Skynet. Like I, I just see like this awful scenario where that is exactly where it's going to go because it ultimately falls in the hands of the evil ones who have all the money and the billion, you know, the trillions and trillions of dollars and own the banking system and all that. And that, that's what really frightens me the most about it. Now, look, when I say frightened, I'm not really frightened. I've got in my life, so I'm, I, he's got my back. But ultimately, I for society, it's I just, I see a lot of bad things coming with it. I just pray that that's a long way down the road. And, you know, there's enough um, restraints on it, I guess I'll say, at this point where they're like, okay, you know what? We should probably not go down this road with it right now. Um, but unfortunately, we know there's always that mad scientist that's just got to, you know, create the atom bomb or, <laughs> or something that's going to just do horrible things to humankind or, or yeah. some, you know, biological weapon or something. Yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be fascinating. I think, um, I mean, if I look at like our experience with HHS, um, like it's 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 definitely brought me closer to God <laughs> um, for sure. Uh, it's brought me got me closer to my wife. Um not because it was easy, but because it was hard. And I'm just hopeful 
that, um, you know, that, that more and more people are waking up to this and, and the, you know, hopefully some, some, hopefully people are seeing these spiritual challenges in their life and they're understanding that they should move closer to God, not away from God. Um, and I'm just hoping that God's has a lot at work to, to make some of these changes because it's going to take, you know, some kind of supernatural crazy, like God to do it. Um, uh, and I, I'm hopeful that, that, that will move things in the right direction. Uh, but I, I think it's going to, you know, even if it does eventually move like to something that's, you know, uh, we live in, if we live in a better society in 30 years, I think it's going to take a long time before we get to the point where we're like looking at the sunshine again and saying, wow, how beautiful it is. I think it's, it, you know, it's, I think we're at the, in the, in the middle of this kind of spiritual, like mixing pot that like, it's going to take a bit to get resolved and it's going to be painful, you know, for a, a period of time before we get to the other side. Especially if it's an AI generated sunset or a sunrise. Yeah. <laughs> are we going to, are we going to know the difference? I don't know. Yeah. Yes. So scary. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. Well, Michael, uh, anything you want to add before we uh, close up shop here for the night? Um, I just want to say thanks. Uh, I'm super, Emily and I are both super grateful for um, what you guys are doing. Um, I think that these conversations, the more that these can happen. And I, I think also like, it's clear that you guys don't just want to have conversations. You guys want to take action. And I think mm -hmm. that's so powerful. I think it takes an amazing amount of courage um, and tenacity and hard work to say that you want to not only have conversations, but you want to take action. And so uh, just really grateful that, uh, that you've, you've allowed me and, and my wife to like, I guess, play a small part in that. You are very welcome. And thank you. And thank you for your courage. I don't really look at it as courage. I look as a, as a necessity. Like this is, if, yeah. if we want to continue as a human race, then this is something we have to stand up against. We cannot allow this. Um, you know, as you, you look at the race wars or whatever, and I mean, we, there was things in our history that we had to change. They were mm -hmm. wrong. It was immoral. I mean, this is one of those, those injustices that needs to stop and we have to stand up for it. And it's a hill to die on. I mean, it's just, that's, there's hill. There's some hills that are, you know, maybe we don't stand up on and it's not to die on. This one is for me personally. And I know the ladies feel the same way. And, uh, you know, you know, you've experienced it firsthand and I'm sure it's a hill you die on now too. You know, you just get it at a different level. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we just need more people to come along and join the fight. <clears throat> I know a lot of people don't use like using that word fight, but it is a fight. This is yeah. a, this is a this is a long battle. I mean, it's it, this is a you know it used to be a twelve round box or fifteen round boxing fight back in the day. I mean, that's what this is. I mean, it's a heavyweight fight, and it's it's going to come down to the fifteen rounds. No one's getting knocked out, um, and I think we win at the end of the day. And that's mm -hmm. just you know my personal opinion, but I think the ladies are on my side on that one. Yeah. yeah. Well, the good news is that we're all on the same hill together. Well, that makes it easier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not king of the hill. And you remember that you had to be, be the first one up there to get. Yeah, oh, yeah we're all we're all doing one. it together. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, ladies, any final words before we let Michael go? Well, I was just gonna say thank you, Michael. Uh, it's always good conversations with you, and we've uh, we've had many conversations, and we could go down a lot more roads, but. Um, <laughs> Thank you for coming on and maybe we can do some uh, other podcast on different subjects. So yeah, yeah I was always happy to talk. Agreed. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your conversations and tell your wife that we love her too. 
Yes. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. I'll, I'll give her a yeah. big old kiss for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, prayers up for your family. Go awesome. ahead, thanks, Mike, guys. You can, you can go ahead and just end your meeting. We're going to stick around and just close up here. Okay, cool. Thanks, guys. Have a good yeah, night. Have a good night. You too. Thank you. What a great guy. Yes. That was a fun was conversation. Great. I mean, not I not I the topic, it. obviously, but but he just, you know, he articulated it very well. And the story is compelling, of course. And it's just mm -hmm. another page in this catalog that we're adding to of, an, you know, thank God his the, the judge, you know, ruled in his favor at this point, you know, and, and we pray that nothing happens going forward. But another hospital story. Yep. Yep. And she's yep. still on the child abuse registry and she's innocent. So that needs to change mm -hmm. ASAP. Yep. That These might be registries. Else I need to look at. These yep. registries are a nightmare. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and is, is, you know, obviously everybody on this panel were against pedophilia, of course. <laughs> but even that, you know, some of these guys that are on pedophilia uh, registries, you're like, wait a minute. Okay. So. Like she just turned seventeen, and he was like eighteen, and they're and these poor guys are stuck on this registry for their entire life. They can't get a job. They can't live in a community. Um, I mean, there's there has to be some recourse for these people to say, you know what? No, this isn't fair. Like this is wrong. Mm -hmm. And I and we would, of course, I would never justify pedophilia. I'm just saying, like there is cases where, you know, they're like two consenting adults basically, and they. It was wrong what they did, whatever. But for crying out loud, like, do you deserve to be in a registry for the rest of your life? And this poor woman, Emily, I mean, come on. Like, you're going to keep her? She never did cocaine in her life. And she's going to be on a registry? Like, are you kidding me? Like, that's insanity. It's completely crazy. And, and Gino, about... you... Oh, what? <laughs> well, I was just going to say, like, what about the false accusation? Like we've seen so many false accusations. So how do we know that they're not lying about the people that are on the pedophile registration or on the child? They're, they're lying about the child abuse registry. Right. So what about that? Uh, well, that needs to be looked at. we also know that actual pedophiles aren't, some of them even aren't even on the list. So there's right. that the actual pedophiles, you're correct. They are not on a list at all. Right. Um, and then, so they are using these systems, these registries to go against the people that retaliate or stand up or that they don't like or whatever. So, I mean, it is something that we haven't looked at. So we got to add something else to our list, Danny. <laughs> yep. And then Gino, since you talked about this towards the end about how this is a personally for you, this is a hill for you to die on. Some people are wanting to know um what got you so passionate about this like what got you involved in this you guys <laughs> megan <laughs> walsh and you guys i mean that's the mike well first let me give credit where credit's due mike pack the hollywood reporter go follow him on twitter mike's a good friend uh we were friends on twitter for four or five years we were snarky we would troll people <laughs> together it was kind of fun we'd laugh about it and then one day he's like hey can i call you man we've never talked we talked for three hours. He told me Megan's story. I had no idea at that point, two and a half years ago, where it would lead me and what that even meant. I didn't, I barely knew, <clears throat> excuse me, what foster care was. I barely knew anything about CPS. I always thought CPS was a great organization saving kids. So I was on the, you know, I would have been on the complete opposite side of this thing. 
Not that I would have died on a hill for that, but I just figured, oh, they're doing their job. Um, even though I was well aware of, you know, conspiracies and all that stuff. I've always known 9-11 was an inside job, <laughs> all that stuff. Like it's so, but so I started listening to Mike's story and he says, I want you to meet Megan. I started talking to Megan and then, you know, fast forward, I meet Sylvia and KK and then that just blew my mind because I remember the first show we did <laughs> and I was, <clears throat> I didn't even know what a caseworker, like, I'm not joking. Like I was so green. I didn't know what a caseworker was, what a social worker was. That wasn't my world. I'm in construction. Like, I mean, I build things, fix things. Like I didn't, so fixings, the fixing part I got, I'm like, okay, this needs to be fixed. If this is a real problem, then we've got to do something. Like we can't allow this to happen. Now, thank God it's never touched my family or anybody I know, um, closely um but i as a moral you know as someone that follows jesus christ as lord and savior i have to be accountable to him first and foremost and i knew once i met sylvia and kk that and and megan's story that i had there had to be something i could do with whatever god's given me um i was going to use it to the best of my ability so um i was all in and once I started understanding it more and just seeing all these, you know, these parents that have been hurt by the system, my heart tears up for each one of them. I mean, I literally think about a lot of them, you know, when I go to bed at night thinking like, this is horrible. Like it's, in, you know, Danielle, your story. I mean, I think about it all the time. Like this is, this is real life. And you know, something we like to make light of it sometimes and just kind of joke around and keep it light sometimes because it's very dark and heavy. Um, and most people don't want to hear it. They don't. They want to say, okay, that that's just, you know, a one-off thing. It, it doesn't happen all the time. Uh, but folks, we're, I mean, we're not making it up. I mean, you can go back and watch all of our shows. Even when I was doing shows with Mark and Terry and Let Our Children Go, we had tons of people in it were giving their stories. It's the same problem. And so that is a hill for me to die in because I believe God has called me for this moment. I think he's called you girls to this moment and others that are that are doing the similar things we're doing. And it, it's, it has to change. It's just, there's no way around it. I mean, I feel like, you know, I'm getting older. <laughs> so, you know, I pray this doesn't go on for another decade or two. I feel like we are getting very close to change. Good days coming for families in this country and reunification and healing on the other side. So it is a hill to die on for me. And I know it is for you too, also. Yep. yep. Well, we appreciate you so much. Sorry, well, I was just going to say it's going to be way less than 20, 30 years. We are not doing that. Yes, we are it going is. to change it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Seriously. Well, <laughs> look, and I'm then, so... Gino, oh, go ahead. Not to mention all the dreams and people prophesizing over your life saying, do a mm -hmm. podcast, do a podcast. I know. Yeah. Barb, Barb's, you know, I told her this <laughs> other night. I said, Barb, we were sitting... <laughs> This is funny. After church, her and I always go get like White Castles. Like we just chow down on hamburgers and stuff. So we're sitting in a parking lot eating and I'm like, Barb, you realize like everything I'm involved with right now and everything that's going on privately, what we've talked about, you know, like not on air yet and things that are going on. I said, it's because of you. Like you literally called me and I was not, I was literally thinking, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do this. And she literally like told me, God told me to call you and you better do it when you get back from vacation. Like I, I, if she didn't do that and wasn't obedient, I don't know what would have happened. I wouldn't have met you guys. I wouldn't have known Megan's story. I wouldn't have known any of this stuff. And then I think about some of the dreams he's given me in the past. One of them was about Moloch. I never understood that dream. It was like five years ago and it was such a weird dream. And he was, and I, now I look back, I'm like, oh my gosh, he was telling me, I want you to stand up 
for this. Like, this is what I'm calling you to do. Even though I knew nothing about it. Zero. And I do mean zero. Like, it was not on the radar screen. So I'm just thankful to Barb. I'm thankful to God. I'm thankful to Mike. I'm thankful to you two. I'm thankful for courageous people that said, you know what? We're willing, we're willing to put our lives aside for the betterment of society. Because that's what it's ultimately about. Love your neighbor. And how can I love my neighbor and then not do anything? <laughs> like that doesn't, that's not in my uh, makeup, you know, as a Christian. Yeah. I have to talk to Jesus one day at judgment. So I want to, I want to hear that well done and good, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't want to just sneak into heaven because, you know, you know, whatever. I just, I want to do what he's called me to do. Well, we think you're doing great and you're our brother in Christ and we love you and we love Julie, your wife, for um, allowing you to be on the yeah. podcast every day of your life. Yeah. So we're grateful for her too. So Yeah, and, and I do need to mention, I didn't. she doesn't like me bringing up all this stuff, but I mean, look, obviously my wife is supportive in what I do. She, now, you know, it makes her a little nervous, I'm not going to lie, but she has been very supportive in it letting me do this it takes a lot of time sometimes i mean a lot of you know chats and, and zoom calls and text messages and stuff but I, she understands it from the other level too she gets it like god has called me to it and i believe he's he's actually calling my entire family into some other things too so as long as we stick to the path you know stay in our lane and do what he's called us to do i think we win at the end of the day in all of this and I, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Like these two women right here are two of the most focused people I have ever met in my life when it comes to um, just anything to do with this subject. Their, their knowledge is beyond, you know, anything they've ever expressed on this show. And also their experiences are what I think ultimately is driving them deep down inside, but also knowing that God's called them to this too. Like we've all been called to do it. And if God's called it, called us to it, he's going to equip us to do it in one way or another, you know, whether that's financially, with our skills and talents, with bringing the right people in at the right time. We're seeing all those things starting to happen. Um, so we know that this is important. And I do believe, I've said this a million times, but I believe what we're doing here is for future things, not so much for right now. I really believe like a lot of this stuff that we've presented to the public will be on a much grander scale at some point um, to show um, like every family that's ever been on here. And I say family, cause even if it was, you know, just the wife came on or just the husband, or maybe they both came on there. It's a family unit. That's what this is about. And so it's going to be important going forward in the future that people see that families were torn apart. And, and these families are so like, I get a little teary. I think about this because it, what blows my mind is that these people can go on a screen and tell their story and, I mean, I don't know what I'm, I, I, I'd be a wreck, but like they go on and they tell their story with their whole heart and they can literally get through an interview and they have to go on with their life after that camera goes off. Like they have to still deal with what has happened to them and their family. And that's, that's another, you know, fire that burns inside of me for them. Like, I think, how do they do that? Where are they finding the strength? And almost all of them are Christians. They've leaned on God. God's got them through it. And so that's, I think about that and I'm like, okay, I'm like, if they can do it, what I, I can absolutely do it. And we're all going through stuff. Like no one gets through this life without getting, you know, going through crap. Like we all have to deal with stuff. So, you know, we can't use that as an excuse. Yeah. 
Amen. Amen. <laughs> was that a sermon? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it your wasn't sermon. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, great show. He was Michael was great. I mean, he was amazing. I would love to have Michael back on. I'd love to have Emily back on and uh, she could, you know, yes. sit and talk yep. also. Okay, so Thursday we have another show. Who's our guest Thursday? Thursday is Meg R. Yay, Meg R, our, our good friend. Yeah. Yeah, Meg, that's going to be fun. Now, that show's not necessarily going to be about foster care and adoption and all that stuff. Meg's a good friend of ours. Meg is a connector, a master connector. She has connected us with many, many people over the last year and a half and has become a very dear friend to me personally and I know also to Sylvia. And I can't wait for Daniel to, you know, joke around with her and stuff. Like, she's very fun. Meg's a great person. She also has a really good testimony uh, in her recent life that I think uh, might be very interesting and compelling to some people that might be struggling with similar problems in their own life so uh it should be very inspirational and a lot we will be laughing a lot i'm sure so that that's good we need to laugh yep don't forget our new website oh, oh yeah yes oh my gosh <laughs> Why didn't i have it pulled up you said that i completely forgot danny and we did so much work on that <laughs> yeah you guys worked really hard i should have had it pulled it up actually, before you know it was actually really easy because i pretty much already had the verbiage and everything uh ready to go and i already had what i wanted it to be in my head so mm -hmm. it was it was actually a really fun and because i learned how to do a website yeah. and it was what we have been doing for the last two years really yeah and it was fun like picking out pictures and all that stuff so that was fun. And I, and I absolutely love the logo. Thank you. We like Thank it you. too. I really like. Sorry, I really love it. Our new uh, website. A, so cool. it's all about restoring families, like the way God intended, right back to the Garden of Eden. So. And there's so much on this website, like. You can spend hours on here if you're looking for resources, um, if you're researching. Uh, I mean, there's just so much on here. Yeah, it's amazing. You guys did a great job. And I know you spent a lot of time on it, late nights and uh, <laughs> just tons of tons of great things in here. Looking forward to it. I know you guys are going to be expanding it and doing more with it. But um, yeah. right now, if, if people need to reach out to you with their own stories or if they want to come on our show, uh, where can they reach out to you guys at? Well, actually, they can go on our website now. There is a contact sheet and uh, there's a form on there. You just fill it out. And actually, if you are if you're a foster youth, we would really like to hear from you um, if you need help. Uh, in your environment, if you're in the foster system and say you're in a group home and you're you're not safe, um, you can go on our website and you can fill this out. Um, mm -hmm. If you are, you know, just a parent looking for resources, um, whatever. But if you want to get in touch with us, you can go here. It does work. We've already gotten responses on here, um, and or you can email us directly. But this is the fastest way if you just want to go to the website. Yeah. And it's rescuethefosters.org. Awesome. Awesome. Looking forward to the days ahead. I'm. It's going to be 
awesome. <laughs> I know we were talking about the AI scare and all that stuff, but the days ahead are going to be so good. And we're and so many people are going to be reunited and healed on the other side of this. And it is, you know, it was funny. Michael brought up, he says, you know, if God gets involved or whatever. And it's funny because it we know there is a Red Sea moment coming. There is going to be divine intervention at some point. And, you know, it might not look like the Red Sea parting or something. But I, I promise God's hand of deliverance is coming upon this nation and upon this system because he cares about children. He cares about families. He built yes. the family. He's the creator of the family. Um, mm -hmm. The divine trinity is a family, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So he's not going to allow this to continue forever. I don't understand his providence and sovereignty sometimes and why he's allowed it to go to this point. I don't know. And I know that's a point of contention with like atheists, you know, they'll say, well, there's this evil thing. Why? If there was a God, he wouldn't allow evil. Well, he does, but he does show his hand at various points in history. And, and I believe he's about ready to do it again. And justice will come and people will, I'm sorry, justice is coming for him. And I pray they repent. I pray they give their lives to him, but there is going to be punishment for what they've done. Um, and they will have to answer for it. So let's just keep praying for his hand to come quickly, swiftly is the word I heard, and um, and and hope justice comes down very, very soon. All right, ladies, great show. We'll see you Thursday night, 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on Insight Channel. I'm also back tomorrow with my good brother, uh, Matt, Pastor Matt. Now he's a pastor. He got his uh, doctorate about two months ago. Hey. Yeah, so Matt, me and Matt will be on tomorrow. Uh, 7.30. I'm not sure if we're going to have a guest tomorrow yet. I, I'm still trying to get a hold of a, a, one of our friends, so I'm not sure if she's going to come on or not. But uh, join us tomorrow, 7.30, also right here, Eastern Standard Time. Um, and then uh, Matt is also, I should have pulled up his website. I told him I would start doing this. But uh, Matt is selling hot sauces. He started his own company, and it's really taking off pretty quickly. God had told him and his wife to do it. They did it. And it's really starting to blossom very, very quickly for him. I'm so glad for him and his wife, Angela. Uh, but I, I don't have his website pulled up. HeatStreetDetroit.com. Go to that if you guys are interested in hot sauces. He's got four of them right now. They're working on some other recipes. Very good. A little a little too hot for me. <laughs> like I had one little, we were at a restaurant eating, and he's like, try it. And then I put it on my tongue, and it literally almost fried my tongue out of my mouth. So um, he's making a mild one for me. He calls ketchup. So we'll, we'll see, we'll see where that goes. <laughs> anyway, have a great night, everybody. God bless. Take care. We'll see you tomorrow and Thursday.